John 21 will be taking up where we left off last week, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, to the conclusion of John's account of the gospel. Let's stand together once more. We stand to hear not the word of man, but the word of God. We do so out of respect and reverence before the one exalted on high, even our God and Father. Verse 18, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, one who also had leaned on the breast of his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? <coughs> Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we are assembled to continue in our worship, we come now to the preaching of the word. We pray, Lord, that what you have appointed for your glory, the preaching of your word that you would bless. Father, even through the frailty of our minister, Lord, would you show forth your power. That in human weakness, you would manifest the power and strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, attend your word, the preaching and the hearing of it with the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are. Alas, we come to the closing verses of the Gospel according to the Apostle John. We spent over two and a half years listening to the voice of God speak forth from the pages of Holy Scripture. And as we've closed out, as we close out and complete the preaching of this inspired account of the gospel, let us listen as though we are hearing the parting words of a dear friend, something J.C. Ryle points out. J.C. Ryle calls John's gospel the most precious book in the Bible. Indeed, many saints would say that. There are many who testify through the reading of God's, John's gospel that they were converted. Perhaps when we read verse 25, there are many other things that Jesus did. We, we might find ourselves wishing that John had written more, that he kept on writing. We must remember that these things that he has written were written for our instruction, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing we would have life in his name. John does not record Jesus giving the Great Commission to the church. John does not record the amount, uh, the event when they went up on the mountain and Jesus ascended into the heavens before his disciples after promising that he would come again. Uh, the final account in John's Gospel is Jesus' ministry beside the Sea of Galilee. 
The last words that Jesus spoke, as John records it, is follow me. Twice, follow me. And here is proof that we would that we have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Proof that we have saving faith if we are following Jesus. One of the commentators I read said that Jesus sums up the gospel to this. Follow me. This is what it is to be a new creature in Christ. Salvation is not a set of doctrines to believe or a bunch of Bible facts. Salvation is turning away from the world and everything else to follow Jesus. Luke records that after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, to the account we find also in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9:23. All must deny themselves. All must take up their cross. All must follow Jesus. Here is evidence of the gospel. Saving grace in the life of a sinner. However, we must not make the mistake of thinking that following Jesus will look the same for every one of us. That brings us to the four points that we'll consider this morning. Our first point is our walks with Christ will differ. Though they're similar, they will differ. Secondly, that we are called to follow Jesus. Thirdly, that we are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. It's a real difficulty, isn't it? And fourthly, we will consider that the scriptures are sufficient. So we begin then with this, that our walks with Christ will look different. John records that what took place immediately after Jesus restored Peter to the office of the apostle, he then commissioned him to feed his sheep. That's what we dealt with last week. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. And then in verse 18, Jesus immediately on the heels of that tells Peter a prophecy. Jesus knows what awaits his disciples, particularly the apostles. He, he knows what's going to happen particularly to, to Peter. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he's talking particular. This is a single you. You know, I like to point out the y'alls when they occur. That's helpful. But this is to you. I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. It's a sober prophecy concerning Peter. It speaks of a martyrdom, though it's not that specific. It's not the time is not told. It's just something that will come. We find that Jesus goes on to say something about John's future. Peter's concerned, well, what about him, Lord? He says, you know, really, it's none of your business. And if I will that he will stay until I return, then I can do so. Very different outcomes for these two men. Indeed, their lives, though they were spent serving Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ. We see in the book of Acts that they, they did quite a bit of ministry together. You know, the healing the lame man at the uh, Solomon's portico. Uh, standing before the, the Sanhedrin on trial, not once but twice. We often find them together, but then there's a time when they're going in different directions as the Lord would use them. But coming back to the text, Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter, literally, he's, he's used to girding himself. He's used to taking his belt. He's used to putting on his belt. Um, this is, um, you might say, um, a figure of speech in that day. 
Basically, he says, you're used to dressing yourself and traveling where you will. You're used to going where you want to go, when you want to go. Impetuous Peter, right? We've seen that. Peter right out there, bold, confident, overconfident, but no more. He's not the same man. Peter has just completed a valuable lesson there by the seaside. And now he's being sent by Jesus to tend his sheep, to feed his lambs. But Jesus tells Peter that when he is old, he will stretch out his hands. And then here's this idea of girding. And another will gird him. Someone else is going to take control. Peter, who has had self-direction now, someone else is going to take control and lead Peter to where he does not want to go. And he will at that time even be carried by others to a place that he does not wish to be. John is years younger than Peter. John was the youngest of the apostles. Peter, uh, at this point, is likely a middle-aged man, you know, whatever that lifespan was then. We might think of him in his 40s. He's, he's in the strength of manhood. John is still something of a youth, probably 20 years younger, maybe a little more than Peter. John outlives him. He explains, verse 19, that Peter or that John can write these words. This, that is, he, Jesus, spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify John. I mean, glorify God. John knows what happens. He knows the fulfillment of this word that Jesus spoke to Peter. We're reminded that John writes his gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke have. He knows the outcome, and he's the one that records something about Peter's death and how it glorified God. Now, Peter, being Peter, still a man, a work in progress, was unwisely curious about what would happen to John, and that's what we see in verses 20. And Peter turned around and saw the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and there's some link to explain who that is, also the one who would lean on the breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is it, the one that betrays you? This one, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter wants to know about John. At some point, we see in this text that Jesus and Peter and John following have left uh, the fireside that they were there on the lake shore. They, they've gone walking. Peter and Jesus have gone walking, and John is following along behind them. How long they've been walking, we're not told, but they're walking. There's a little surprise here that Luke records in Acts that, as I mentioned earlier, Peter and John are often together. And so John uh, follows Peter. Peter, much seen perhaps as, as an older man, a, a mature man, one who he looks to. You know, they're the same trade. They're fishermen. There's an attachment between John the younger and Peter. So when Peter gets up to follow Jesus, it's not surprising that John goes also. Jesus' word to Peter at his question is something of a rebuke. It's not a harsh rebuke. But you notice he says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You could sum it up and say, mind your own business, Peter. I've just given you a charge. I've restored you to apostleship. I've commissioned you to be a preacher of righteousness, to, to feed my sheep with the word. 
your focus needs to be on that. And we understand that that's Peter is being corrected because what is Jesus telling? The same thing he's already told him. You follow me. It's a more emphatic. Before, it's follow me. It's, it's a command, but this one's more emphatic. You, talking to you, Peter, you focus on following me. Do not be overly concerned about John. Was Jesus saying in this text that Peter is to be crucified? You notice that uh, the words, it's, it's, it's kind of vague. He said, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. It's not specific. It is, is speaking of a martyrdom, of him being put to death. But was Peter crucified? Some historians writing in the 2nd and 3rd century record that that's what they, they think happened, that Peter was crucified. They're going so far as that when the time came that Peter objected to being crucified upright, like his Lord, that he wanted to be crucified upside down. John Calvin wisely teaches us, on the other hand, I'm quoting here, as to the manner which Peter was put to death, it is better to remain ignorant of it than to place confidence in doubtful fables. What Jesus is telling Peter, and indeed informing the church, is Peter is going to die for the sake of his master. He is going to die in the service of Christ. Jesus' prophecy indicated that Peter would not die from natural causes, that he would suffer a martyr's death. And it's pretty well established that Peter traveled to many places, Asia Minor and so forth, that indeed he went about doing what the Lord commanded him to do. He went feeding the sheep. Particularly, Peter was an apostle to the Jews. And he went to the, the Jews of the dispersion that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. We find Paul doing that as well, and he goes to the Jews and they reject him, and Paul turns to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles rejoice that the gospel had even come to them. But Peter, doggedly and, and with his, his tenacity, pursues the Jews, preaching the gospel, and eventually he pursues the Jews even to Rome. And it was there that we understand that Nero seized him, and he was put to death by the government. Whereas John... He lives on. John lives, it would seem, outlives all the other apostles. There's, there's no record in, in Scripture and, and nor in church history uh, to suggest that John was martyred. We know that he's on the Isle of Patmos also being persecuted because he's a preacher of righteousness. He's faithful to serve Christ. And thus he is there on the Isle of Patmos. And there's there, it is there that on the Lord's day, the Lord God reveals to him what we now know as the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And all the record indicates that John lived out his days and died of natural causes. An old man having disciples that will live on even into the second century. We're thinking particularly of Polycarp. Let me see here. Two men who walked with Jesus, two different men, and yet they had commonalities. We see there's a similarity. They're both sinners saved by grace. They're both commissioned to be apostles. They're both set forth to feed the sheep, preach the truth that God has revealed to them. They're both inspired men. They, they author the Scriptures. And yet, their lives take a different path. That's an important lesson for us to learn. We're called to follow Jesus on the path that He leads us. And it will differ from those around us, even those of our own household. Think about your siblings that love the Lord. Some of you adults, you know, you've got a, a siblings who are adults and, and their lives have taken a different direction. 
Some will work in one line of work and others in another type of work. Some will marry, others will remain single. Some will have one child, while others will have ten children or anything in between. Some will be appointed to be stewards of great income, while others will be entrusted to, as we think of the parable, to care for but one talent. And on and on. But we're all called to follow Jesus wherever he would direct us to go. We'll have more on that in the next point. But first, some applications before we move on. First, we see that Jesus knew then and knows all things. He is God and has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Our lives, your life, is fully known to Christ. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. There's, there's no luck. There's no chance. There's no accident in our lives. God, as I've told you before, God is overall, in all, and through it all. God is too wise to err and too loving to harm you. God is too wise to err and too loving to harm you as he directs your life. As we sing in the one hymn, whatever my God ordains is right. Easy to stand here in an assembly of worship and sing those words. Sometimes when you're in the midst of a week, suffering and trials, maybe we wonder about those words. But indeed, that's the truth. We want to come back to that. Whatever my God ordains is right. What God ordained for Peter and John was right. It was the right path for those men in their service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John didn't walk alone. Jesus went with them all the way to the end when they were gathered home to heaven. And in the dark and difficult days of our lives, we remember this. God appoints the comfortable days as well as the difficult ones. They're all from the Lord and all for our good. And his glory. Secondly, we just heard that Peter's death was for God's glory. From this, we must learn that we are to live our lives for God's glory. We were often aware of that. You know, we struggle with that. This is often the struggle of our daily life. That we're living for God's glory. That we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That we're seeking to be more than conquerors for the glory of God. But we need to remember to die to the glory of God. Let me be some pathetic whiner in our death. You know, if it's a long extended illness. By the grace of God, we want to bear up and die to the glory of God. If we're suddenly seized and, and taken to the gallows as, as martyrs, we want to die for the glory of God. Indeed, there's the record of those in church history that have done so. It's, it's astounding. Some of you read the accounts of those during the dark days of the church and the, the, uh, particularly the time of the Reformation, leading up to the Reformation during that. that they died to the glory of God. We want to live to the glory of God. And die to the glory of God. Let Christ be your Savior not only in life, but in death. Live by faith in life as well as in death. If you are not able to say that Christ is your Savior in life and in death, then that was the day of salvation. Even now you have an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord that you may know this one as Peter and John did. That you have this opportunity to name the name above all names, Jesus, as your Jesus, as your Savior. Thirdly, this one's a little more focused. Every gospel minister should expect that he is to be busy faithfully feeding Jesus' sheep and that he will be opposed. He may even be violently opposed. 
even unto death, even as Peter was. You've heard me say before that I, I will not be surprised that if that I'd be arrested for preaching the gospel as the world more and more, as opposed to the revelation of God's word, that there may be the time when I'm put behind bars or more for being faithful. Have you considered that for yourself? It's not just for ministers. It's true for all of us that we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jesus clearly has taught that those who follow him should expect to be persecuted for his sake. He said, they persecuted me. And as my people, they will persecute you. You see, coming to Christ for salvation is the most liberating thing. You're free from sin, but you're joined to a Savior. And that makes you a target from the world. It's not a life of ease and comfort. To live the Christian life is to be constantly at war with our own flesh. Thus, Jesus says, take up your cross, dying daily to self-crucifying the flesh. And thus we'll be hated. Jesus said this in the Beatitudes. He said, men will revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's the right kind of persecution to suffer for Christ's sake. But Jesus tells us what to do then. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Secondly, we are called to follow Jesus. Uh, We said in the previous point that although our lives will take different paths, we're all called to follow Jesus. That's Luke 9.23. If any man would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. We're called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily to crucify our own flesh, and following Jesus. That's what Jesus says for every disciple. If you would be a new creature in Christ, if indeed you would have the salvation that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must follow Christ. Jesus doesn't just save us and set us on a shelf. He doesn't just save us, okay, you're justified. Go live how you want. He calls us as justified, that is, having right standing before God because our sins are forgiven, then to put to death sin, to live holy lives, even as he is holy. And this is where we must take up our cross daily, denying self. When Jesus told Peter in verse 19, follow me. And it's clear from the context that Jesus is not literally saying, follow me. This is not the point at which they got up. He didn't stand up and say, Peter, follow me. No, they've, they've gone walking. This is not to be taken literally. This is a, a metaphorical, if you will. This is a, 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 a command for his life. Live your life following me as I go before you. Jesus has already told his disciples that he's returning to the Father. And they cannot accompany him. What they're familiar with, for three years when he called them from their nets in the tax booth and wherever he found them, they have followed him. It may be that some days he, he got up and had to tell him, you know, gather your stuff, follow me. But he may have just got up and started going and they followed him. That's what they're familiar. But now he's saying, you're to continue following me, though I will be at the right hand of my Father. He's promised in the Holy Spirit. They're to continue to follow him in life. He's going to the Father. They cannot accompany him. He's told him that, remember, in the upper room discourse. So I don't think Peter had any confusion, and we should not either, that Jesus is saying, follow me, keep tracing out my steps. 
but indeed follow me. And Jesus has made a promise that he's going to send them the spirit. And then he will come again. He says, I'm going to my father. And he said, he told him, he says, you can't go where I'm going, but I will come for you again. And where and I will gather you that to where I am, you may be also. So when Jesus says to Peter, follow me, understand it this way. Obey me. I think we understand that. Obey Christ. Anything about Peter's distraction about John, Peter's got more than enough on his plate just being focused on obeying Christ. Is that not true for us all? You know, we, we, it's more than that we're able to keep up with, isn't it? To follow Christ, to obey Christ, to keep his commandments, to be listening to his voice as he speaks in Scripture in Providence. Jesus has promised them having told them that he's going to leave them, that he's going to send the Comforter. And he said, He, the Spirit of truth, will guide them into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to y'all. It's the plural, you. Jesus already prepared them for this moment. He's already taught them. That's why the upper room discourse is so important. He's laid out a map. He's told them what to expect. He's told them how to go and to live. And so when Peter hears, follow me, Peter is to remember those things and to be rejoicing. Peter is to follow Jesus as the Holy Spirit leads and guides him. That was the promise that Jesus made to them, that the Spirit would do that. Peter is to live each day dependent upon Jesus as he reveals himself in his word and by his spirit. Follow me then as a renewed call to discipleship. So Jesus says to you, each day we need a renewed commitment to being followers of Christ. Jesus continues to call us to follow him. What does that look like then? I think that's an important question. Maybe you're saying that. Well, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, we've covered this in John's Gospel. Look back at John 15. Part of the upper room discourse. Jesus said in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. All right, there's the context for following Christ. We must abide in him. We're grafted into him by faith. And by being grafted in him, we bear fruit. He goes on, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Think of the context, or the comparison to their, or the con, um, not the contrast, the how consistent this is with what Jesus said in Matthew. He says, you take up my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and in me you will find rest for your soul. Again, calling to Jesus. You know the yoke is? We're so far removed from these things. I don't know if any of you ever saw a couple of oxen yoked together to work to plow a field. That's the picture. It's a heavy wooden piece carved out to sit on the necks of these Strong animals. So they're yoked together, that is, bound together with the harness and the yoke. They could pull a plow or a great wagon and accomplish much work. Jesus says, you need to be yoked with me. 
part of the reality of the yoke was one bull couldn't go this way and another bull go that way. I mean, that was some of the disaster when you were teaching yoke oxen to walk in the yoke. Something that we experience when we begin walking with Christ. We're trying to pull one way and our Savior's going the other. But he says, you know, my yoke is easy. And when we just walk alongside him in obedience, it is a burden that is light to walk with him. That's some of what it is to follow Christ. Second, following Jesus means that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. That language is how Jesus defines discipleship. Deny self and take up your cross and die to self. Follow me. In order to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves. If you're in a yoke with him, you can't go your way when he's going another direction. Jesus goes on to say that whoever would find life must lose his. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is, find life. We must recognize that as sinners we have no right to stand before the holy God of heaven. We're guilty. We're condemned. So we must, in following Christ, renounce pride. We must humbly come to Jesus for cleansing. This is the beginning of abiding in Christ. We must come by faith alone, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then our lives are to be lives marked out by two things, faith and repentance. We do that when we first believe, right? Brothers and sisters, each day, throughout the day, our life is to be marked out by faith and repentance, believing the promises of God, resting upon Christ, abiding in Christ, being yoked together with Christ, and walking in faithfulness, obedience. Turning away from sin and iniquity. A life of faith and repentance. To live for Christ and to die to self. And indeed we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if, we live, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we shall live. Romans 8, 13. Let's think about the commandments. They remind us that we are to have no other gods before us. Only the one true and living God. And what I think we often miss is the very first thing is we must stop worshiping ourselves as God. And until that we do that, we're not denying ourselves. We're not dying to self. We must follow Christ. The third thing we learn here is that self-denial also means that we must embrace whatever suffering for Jesus' sake he sends our way. We must embrace that suffering. The cross is a place of scorn. It's where people are mocked. And if we are carrying our cross, the world will mock us. What does that look like? Well, we're in the midst of a sinful and rebellious people. They want us to live this way, confess this, and celebrate these things. Do we not know that today in our day? We cannot do that. And if we're not doing that, if we're going contrary to what the world is demanding, we're not celebrating what we want to celebrate, we condemn it because the Word of God condemns it. We stand for the truth. You will suffer. People are suffering. We should expect to suffer more. When we don't join the world in its woke progressivism and embrace all their demands, you will suffer for Jesus' sake. More and more, we see that coming in our day. It's at this point that many turn back from following Jesus. Do you like to suffer? Of course not. But when we're yoked together with Christ and we're abiding in Him as the vine, we could suffer. 
it may be that some of the suffering is because of our sins. Sometimes we suffer because the Father's pruning us, that we would bear more fruit. But indeed, let all our suffering be for the glory of God. Carrying a cross is not appealing on the face of it. But if we would enjoy deepening fellowship with Jesus, then we cannot walk the way of the world. We must walk with Christ. Listen to the words, the final words of Psalm 16. Psalm 16 celebrates the suffering of Christ, the suffering that the Messiah would undergo, and particularly that he would die for his people. Listen to how the, the Savior celebrates through the prophecy of David as he closes out this psalm. The suffering servant Christ says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's said right in the context understand that Christ suffered for our sakes. And in the prophecy that though he has done this, that his flesh would not undergo corruption. Though he was dead, he would not decay. It's, it's a looking forward to the resurrection. Though he suffered, that he would be raised again in a newness life. And we should keep that in perspective because Jesus had promised that when we come to him for life, we have everlasting life. Though our, the shell may lay down in the grave, yet we live forever. And we too can say in the light of suffering, show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures that the world knows nothing about. Pleasures that we don't even have language to describe while here on the earth. And yet that is the promise of our God. Let us keep that in view when we suffer for Jesus' sake. But thirdly, we keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. Peter received this mild but necessary rebuke from Jesus because so soon after he was restored, he looked away from Jesus and he's looking at Peter. He's just had a charge from Jesus to feed his sheep. And Peter turned and looked at John. Peter quickly lost sight of what he was charged to do, what awaited him in the future. What about John? He wants to know what Jesus has to say about John. But what did Jesus say to Peter? He says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John's life is my business, not yours. And your life is my business. And it is your business to keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't get distracted by what others are doing. Now, let me just say before I go on here, we are our brother's keeper. We are members of a body. We have responsibilities corporately to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to submit to one another. We're to, to uh, exhort one another. We have all these one another's that we're to do, but don't let another's life pattern. Remember, our lives are different. We take different courses, different directions as God leads, but don't let another person's life become a distraction to you. That distraction often comes by when we compare our life with the lives of other people. Sometimes we do that because we want to feel better about ourselves. Like, well, look at how they're living. <laughs> at least I'm not like that. How arrogant. Don't be distracted. Keep your eyes on Christ as you follow him. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in his second letter. This is 2 Corinthians 10:12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. 
But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. When we start comparing ourselves with one another, we're not wise. Who's the standard of righteousness, holiness? Christ alone. We're to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ as we press on to the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. We're to run the race that is set before us and keeping the rules of that race. We want, like Paul, to be able to come to the end of our lives and say, by the grace of God, I have finished well. Peter's just heard from Jesus that he's going to suffer a martyr's death. He wants to know what's in store for John. He wants to express well, is, is he going to have that tough time of it? Or does it get it easier? Whatever he's thinking, Jesus says, it's not your business. Jesus pulls him, Peter back to the main thing. Follow me. Don't take your eyes off from me, Peter. And indeed, that's what Jesus says to each one of us. Don't take your eyes off from me. I am the one who has saved you. I am the author of your salvation. I am the one who has secured your salvation with my blood. I have brought my salvation to you by sending my spirit into your heart. And I am the one who will complete or perfect, bringing it to maturity, your salvation. Look to Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. Look to him. In times of peace and calm, it's important to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's when we're vulnerable. When things are difficult, when we're suffering, when there's hardship pressing in upon us for whatever matter it may be, we might be more inclined to look to Jesus. But we need to keep our eyes on Christ at all times. Particularly after some a wonderful moment, some glorious uh, new thing you learned in the Scriptures, the Lord has demonstrated to Himself in a very tangible way to you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If He has given you a good gift, keep your eyes on Jesus and not the gift. Be grateful to the one who's given the gift and don't let the gift enamor you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Fourthly, the Scriptures are sufficient. As John closes, he's referred to himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned back on his breast at the supper, wanted to do who was the one who was going to betray him. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things. Now the language there tells us it's not just these things that he's talking about right here. It's these things of his gospel. Of what he's written in this book, we know the book of John. He wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now let me just comment on the we. Commentators spend a lot of time on that. Did somebody else write this? Someone suggested it's the elders at Ephesus where John ministered for some time that they're adding this postscript. I don't think it's a difficulty because one of the things that happens in the Greek, and it's something that the apostles particularly do, they use the plurality of majesty. Thus, that's what I think we find here. We, we know that his testimony is true. It's the plurality of majesty that the apostles had because of the uniqueness. They are called by Christ. They're in an awesome a unique office as apostles. And it's their testimony. Sometimes when they say we, they're thinking of the other apostles to which the gospel was entrusted. You remember, they're the foundation stone of the kingdom. You look at the book of Revelation when, they, when there's this metaphorical um, and, and a picturesque picture of the church coming down. And what are the 12 foundation stones? What's written on them is the names of the apostles. 
These men enjoy a majesty because they're Christ-sent ones. And so when we hear John say, we know that his testimony is true. John's saying, this goes beyond me. The Holy Spirit is in him. John is bearing witness to everything that is written, that it is a faithful and a true record. And then he says, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We're not going to debate whether that's hyperbole or not. Indeed, when you consider everything that's been done since the beginning of creation is all the work of Christ. You know, if you write all that down, everything that he's done in every life and every nation down through all the course of human history, I can't even imagine how many books that would be. Never mind all the commentaries that would be written on it. So maybe it's hyperbole, maybe it's not. But here's the point that John's making. These things were written for your instruction. These are sufficient. You don't need anything more. When the scriptures were completed, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, when the mature has come, the complete, the perfect has come, there would be no longer a need for the revelatory work of the Spirit through men of God. Because we'll have the fullness of God's revelation. We'll have the fullness of the Word of God. These 66 books as we now have them. John's Gospel is sufficient. He's told us everything in harmony with the other Gospel writers. We have all we need to know about Jesus. Yes, Jesus did many other things. Mighty works. Uh, miracles. We, we read sometimes that, that uh, as the evening came, they started to bring the sick to Him and He healed them all. How many even was that? We don't know. The record we have is sufficient. And brothers and sisters, this is something that is continually under attack in the life of the church. The sufficiency of Scriptures. There are branches of the church that are looking for prophetic utterances, new revelations, a word of knowledge. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are complete and they're sufficient. We don't need anything more. There's more that John John says there's so much more that will be written, but this is what was written. This is sufficient. This is complete. And we need to rest in this knowledge. The scriptures are sufficient. For a life of godliness. To instruct us in the way of holiness. to Especially as John said in earlier chapter. So that we would know. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. God come in the flesh. Born of the virgin. God who came down to walk amongst men. Keep and live in a holy life before God. As the God man. As man. As one of us. To do what we could not do for ourselves, And then to go to the cross. And there to undergo the wrath of God. So that our sins would be punished. So that Jesus could bring us to the Father. The record's complete. It's sufficient. We don't need to speculate. We shouldn't speculate. It's dangerous. These things are written. These are sufficient. Brothers and sisters, rest in this. That he who is the word who became flesh has spoken. He's spoken to the apostles. He spoke spoken in the scriptures as he sent the spirit as he promised to do. And we have all we need. Amen. We have Jesus. Amen. And we have his word. Let us rest in that. Amen. Amen. Oh Lord our God, we do thank you for John's gospel. We thank you for the many hours that we have spent together at the feet of Jesus, as he has opened up this inspired book.
that that disciple whom was beloved to him has written under inspiration. We marvel, Lord, that you take flawed, frail vessels, men, even sinners like we are, and you use them as vessels for your honor, that we would not look at the man, but that we would look at Christ, who has spoken even in our day as he is appointed. We thank you for the ongoing work of prophecy, not new revelation, the spirit-led and guided explanation, explication, application. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the gospel according to John and the prophet that we've had with it. May it continue as we think on these things throughout our days. And may, above all, we look to Jesus and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.